0: Father, your words at times has very hard things for our hearts to hear, so we ask you to be, we ask you to help us to be people who are humble and contrite, those who tremble at your word. Will you keep us from shying away from that which you are saying to us? Help us to see Jesus as he really is this morning and to respond with faith, we pray in his mighty name, amen. Yesterday was the 50th anniversary of one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The way how the astronauts actually from Apollo 11 actually made it to the moon's surface. I think most of us have seen pictures and videos of that event. It's a significant event in human history to say the least. Uh, I found something out new this, this year. Um, along the way, obviously no one had ever been to the moon. So there's a lot they didn't know about it. And in fact, they weren't sure what they were going to find, even with the moon's surface itself. Uh, They knew it was made up of moon dust, but they didn't know if the lunar lander would just sink right into it, or if when the astronaut Neil Armstrong stepped down, whether he would slide into the dust, they weren't sure. Uh, There was one newspaper headline that said, mystery unsolved by photos, will man sink into the surface? So there's this real thought, what is going to happen? Uh, Certainly there were astronauts that were worried about that. There were certainly people on the ground worried about that. Uh, Probably the most worried about it was the mother of Neil Armstrong. Uh, She was very concerned this would happen. And so after Neil got onto the surface and kind of stamped his foot a few times, he said something that was actually for his mother's ears. He said this, I only go in a small fraction of an inch, maybe an eighth of an inch, but I can see the footprints of my boots and the treads in the fine, sandy particles. See, it turns out, no matter how high you rise, keeping mama happy is still priority number one. (laughs) Now, we didn't know what we would find on the moon, even as we sent men on a mission. Uh, A very different sort of mission is before us in the passage before us of John chapter 12. Jesus has been sent as a missionary out of heaven as the light coming into a dark world. The question is, what sort of reception will he get? Will people believe him? Will they respond in faith? Or will they reject him and turn away from him? We're at a section in John's gospel that is... A bit like the variety clip show of your favorite show they might have, where they go back over the highlights over the last season. Where John 11, 1 through 11 is kind of one unit in the book, and 13 through 20 is another, and we're finishing up this transition period. And John brings back to the surface these prominent themes of who it is that Jesus is, and more importantly, how people respond to him. So what we're going to see this morning are three aspects of what Jesus, the missionary from heaven, finds when he comes to earth. Three aspects of what Jesus finds when he comes to earth. Those three aspects are first in 36 through 41, we see Jesus will find fulfilled unbelief. Fulfilled unbelief. Second in 42 through 43, we'll see he'll find fearful unbelief fearful unbelief and then finally in 44 through 50 it's not all negative Jesus will find faith filled belief. In all of this we will see that if we understand and see this Jesus with eyes would see this Jesus rightly that we should respond with faith. Let's begin in 36 through 41 what is the first thing Jesus finds? fulfilled unbelief. It's been a few weeks since we uh, were in the passage immediately before this. Jesus had one last encounter publicly with a group of religious Jews. It was kicked off by these Gentiles, these Greeks coming, asking for an audience with Jesus. At the end of this encounter, Jesus warns this group of religious Jews that their window of opportunity to believe Is closing. If if you have your Bible, look in verse 35. Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is Jesus telling them there is a limited time offer before you. Believe while you can. Well, in verse second half of 36 and 37, we see that window of opportunity has closed. John tells us, in verse 36, when Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. That should have an air of finality to it. That's Jesus in his physical action, revealing that judgment has come for God's people. If we were to trace out the trajectory of the people Jesus is talking to, by and large, the God's people, the Jewish people in Jesus' day, did not receive him. And in A.D. 70, finally, there would come judgment on Jerusalem. Jesus here is revealing that their chance to believe in him has has passed. And John is going to tease out for us exactly what that means. He's going to do so in two different aspects. First, he's going to show us how they are responsible in verse 37. Look, look, look at how he says He says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. You can almost hear John's frustration, almost hear lament in his voice. I mean, in spite of all the signs that Jesus did, in spite of all the messages he gave, still they did not believe. And think about it, John's gospel has been going through great pains to show us all of these miracles with messages behind them that Jesus has been doing, that people should realize who he is, the the one sent from heaven whom they must believe in. I mean, this group of people that rejects him, they saw him turn water to wine as a sign to show that God's eternal party the end time banquet was being ushered in. They saw him heal an official's son just with his words, not even being in the same zip code as him. Just go, your son is healed. They saw him take a man who had been lame a whole lifetime and command him to take up his mat and walk. And he did. They saw him feed 5,000 men and probably about 15,000 women and children with five loaves and two fish to, to show that he was the one that gives life, the very bread of life. They saw him casually take a stroll across a stormy, roiling lake and in a moment bring an imperiled vessel back into safe harbor. They saw him give a man that was born blind sight to show, him that, show people that he could give them eyes of faith. And then they saw him command a man that had been dead for three days to come back to life. And they saw him obey. All of these miracles and so many more that Jesus has done have been for the same reason, to reveal that he is the very son of God from heaven that in order to be right with God, you must believe in him. And yet, despite all of these things, John tells us they still would not believe. This is what you would call culpable unbelief. People who had every reason in the world to believe and found every reason not to. All of us are culpable in our unbelief. And yet, the greater the light, the greater the guilt for what we reject. Now, as important as that is, that is not the only thing that's occurring here. There is something else happening in their unbelief. And John puts it before us. Not only is, are they responsible for their unbelief, but God is accomplishing something through it. That's what we see in 38 through 41. Verse th- 38. Still, they did not believe. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John explains, as they are guilty in their unbelief, there's something more happening here. So that, that is a a gar clause in Greek. It's a purpose clause. It's explaining that something is being accomplished in this moment. What is that thing? There is a fulfillment of a prophecy given hundreds of years ago to the prophet Isaiah. John then quotes from Isaiah 53.1. In this section, it's a a section if you're familiar with Isaiah, there's something called the the servant song. uh, Servant songs uh, talking about God's messenger that is going to come, who is going to suffer and die. If you were to read the rest of Isaiah 53, you would immediately recognize it because of how tightly it prophesies Jesus is coming. This one verse, though, is picking up on a very prominent theme in running through Isaiah with the servant that he will reveal God in a new way and yet he will be rejected. He'll reveal God in a greater way than before and he will be rejected. And that is a great mark of judgment coming upon a people. Now, uh, let me just say, I, I realize that is already hard to process. That God would know that a people are going to reject what he's going to show of himself and do it anyway. That seems like a fruitless exercise. It, it almost sometimes feels cruel. And yet there's an even a harder word coming next. Look with me in verse 39. Therefore, this is John speaking now, explaining, therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. As hard as it is to grasp that God would know what is going to occur and do it anyway, verse 39 forces us into an even more uncomfortable position. They could not believe. That the very thing, the very message given actually helps to harden someone in their unbelief. Now to understand what's going on here, you have to understand Isaiah 6, which is where that quotation has come from. Uh, We read the first part of Isaiah 6 this morning together, that responsive reading. That's the most familiar part of Isaiah 6 to most of us. It's that beautiful, majestic scene of God in his throne room. Isaiah's brought up there, he sees the glory of the Lord. He is so undone by the purity and holiness of God that he despairs and God has to send an angel to atone for his sins. And then there's a section that missionaries very often find uh, to be how they discover their call to ministry. God calls out from the throne, who shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah volunteers, here I am, send me. It's beautiful. Now, you should be careful what you volunteer for. Um, I I used to teach students this as a a student pastor. Oftentimes, I would ask for a volunteer before I told them what horrible, messy game they were going to volunteer for. They learn very quickly if they don't like messy, gross games, they don't volunteer for things. Uh, Maybe I should have learned that myself. Um, Maybe if I asked what I was volunteering for before volunteering, I wouldn't have ended up in the dunk tank yesterday. Um, Isaiah doesn't ask what he's volunteering for. He knows he's being sent as a messenger. But if we read the rest of Isaiah 6, you realize he has volunteered for an extremely difficult ministry. If you have your Bible, look at Isaiah 6, 9 through 13. This is what Isaiah's job description from God is. Isaiah 6, 9. And he said, go And say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were told, all right, your job is to go and to preach to preach a judgment message. And and by preaching that judgment message, people will get even more hardened in their opposition to the message. That doesn't give me a lot of confidence or a lot of energy to go do this yet. You can see Isaiah's hesitant, verse 11. Then he said, how long, oh Lord? That's a lament. Really, Lord? You're gonna do this? How long is this gonna go on for? And it doesn't get better from there. Look, Look at the rest of 11. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people from far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled the holy seed is its stump God says, all right, Isaiah, you think that's hard? You're going to preach, and you're going to keep preaching until the people are so rebellious that I'm going to take them off into exile. And just when you think it can't get any worse, just when a tenth of them are left, I'm going to burn the rest. There's going to be another purging. And at the end, it'll be like a tree that was not just cut down, but the stump was scorched at the end. The only glimmer of hope is at the very end, That the holy seed is the stump. That maybe, just maybe, there might still be some life left. And as Isaiah's ministry goes on, we'll see there is indeed life to come, even if he won't live to see it. Now this is a hard, hard word. This is God doing something that theologians call judicial hardening. You see, as true as it is that we believe and are responsible for our belief in response to the word of God given to us, it's also true that God is sovereign even over the human heart, that there are times where God hardens people in their unbelief, where he says, fine, you want to reject? Then I will let you reject from here until eternity. Now, we don't know the hearts of men the way God does. We can't tell when someone has been judicially hardened or not. And yet the inspired writer, John, looks back on this generation of people that saw Jesus so clearly and rejected him and says, this was God accomplishing something. Now, at the same time, we need to realize that this isn't God being evil or mean or capricious toward his people, that he is actually accomplishing something good, even through what we might call a song in the minor key. Look in verse 41, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That is even this throne room with the glory that Isaiah saw was part of this revelation that Isaiah was given to go and preach this message of judgment. That that there's actually something about the contrast between the holiness of God on his throne, the majesty of who God is, and the dark backdrop of rebellious people that reject him. Something about even people hardened in their opposition to God makes God look more glorious. Now, that's true for Isaiah. It's certainly true for us today. You know, anytime someone believes, we have witnessed a miracle in front of us. None of us would believe if not for God. And yet it's true. Any of us that have believed really have believed. And yet we're supposed to remember that behind our belief is the gracious work of God to open Blind, spiritual eyes, allow our hearts to actually see Jesus as he is and to overcome our rebellion so we can embrace him how we should. None of this means that we, are not, or that we are not responsible for our choices. None of this means that anyone can blame God for their unbelief. But it does mean anytime someone believes, God gets all the Glory. See friend, even the dark backdrop of unbelief becomes the occasion for us to see Jesus as more glorious. I think there's one area of life that Christians get this intrinsically. We just understand it works this way. both that we are responsible and we truly believe for ourselves, and that God is sovereign over even our hearts. It's when we pray. I mean, think of the way that you get down on your knees, And you pray for a child that doesn't know the Lord. That you pray for a parent that's close to the end of their life and it's not a Christian. The way that you pray for a best friend that has just not come to see Jesus the way he needs to. To embrace him as Savior. You pray and you ask God to change their heart. Open their eyes. Let them see. And yet when they believe you know they believed. That that was their heart responding the way they wanted to. See, as Christians, we have to be okay with both. There, there are spots in the Bible that again and again that are going to force us to affirm both these things, that, that God is sovereign and that we are responsible. And we can't just skip over them or pretend they're not there or give trite answers. We, we just have to affirm the things the Bible forces us to affirm and then trust God that whatever we don't understand that he is right in those things too. Now, I don't want to give the impression that just because this one type of fulfilled prophecy of unbelief, that's the only reason people don't believe. In fact, Isaiah gives us, uh, John gives us another reason why people don't believe in 42 through 43. It's not only fulfilled unbelief, it's also fearful unbelief. That's unbelief, that's motivated by fear. Look in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Verse 42 sounds good. Many believed... And yet we find out their belief doesn't go very deep. They do not confess him. That that means that this belief is surface level at best. Why don't they confess him? Well, a bit of a justified reason. They're afraid the Pharisees will kick them out of the synagogue. The very thing that happens to so many Christians in that first generation when they come out as followers of Jesus. Now, but fear... Even that is not enough to describe the most fundamental motivation of the human heart. As much as fear is motivating these people, if you go further down that thread, you come to a more basic motivation. And that is the motivation of love. See in verse 43 there what John says? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from from God. See, people will do incredible things when they are fearful, but people will sacrifice incredible things when they love. The soldier that's willing to die for his country out of love for that country. The astronaut that's willing to risk his life going to the moon out of love of discovery. See, the most fundamental question that we can ask is what do we love most? What you love most will determine your eternal destiny. It will determine your life forever. You have a group of people here that John describes. They hear the word from Jesus. They understand it. They even believe it. And yet they don't love Jesus more than they love approval and they love status then they love security. They don't love Jesus enough to sacrifice the things of this earth so they can have Jesus and all of him. And as a result, they miss out on Jesus. Now, friends, a lot has changed in 2,000 years, but the human heart is one thing that has not. Our hearts still have the tendency to love the wrong things, And in so doing, to actually live our lives in worship of an idol. You need to ask yourself what do you love most? Is it Jesus? Is it your leisure time? A time where you don't have anyone telling you what to do and you can just be yourself for a few moments a day? Is it Jesus? Or is it the security that your possessions or your income or your job can provide for you? Is it Jesus? Or is it the way someone you love makes you feel? Someone that affirms you and seems to complete you? You see, friend, you can take any good thing and turn it into something that would actually prevent us from receiving the fullness of Jesus. And we just love that thing more than we love him. On the other hand, when we release our love for the things of this world, when we surrender all, as the song we sang just a little while ago says, we find joy. We find a joy that we cannot find in anything else in this world. When you're willing to tell someone about Jesus, even if it means messing up the friendship and them never quite looking at you the same way, Yeah, that's hard, but there is something that happens in your heart where you know that is the right thing you did. You find a joy that wasn't there before. Husbands, when you sacrificially love your wives because you know that is what a Christian husband is called to do, even when it means missing out on your hobbies and missing out on doing all sorts of things you otherwise would do, you know, there's a joy that comes knowing you are serving in a way that glorifies Jesus, you are showing you love Him more than you love your own comfort. All of us should desire for our very lives to be shaped in such a way that people will look at us and say they must love Jesus; otherwise, what they're doing makes no sense. I mean, maybe your church, your family calendar is how that comes out. Uh, parents, sports are really good. I'm sure your kids enjoy them. They should. But make sure that your calendar reflects that your kids and your family loves Jesus above all else. Make sure there's time in there to be at church, for them to be discipled, for, for them to have enough rest to show up to church and be awake when a preacher goes for too long. You know, th- There's lots of different ways this plays out. The question is, which way is our heart pointing? In Jesus' day, there, were a, there was a large group of people that largely would not let go the things of this world. And so they would not receive him. Friends, let's not let that be true of any of us today. But thankfully, these are not the only chords that John the author is playing this morning. There's one more reaction that Jesus, the missionary from heaven, found when he came to this earth. That's in 44 through 50. He found faith faith-filled belief faith-filled belief now i've already told you that this is the variety show clip show of john's gospel it's rehashing themes that have come up again and again in jesus's ministry i'll show you one way that i came to that conclusion verse 44 and jesus cried out and said now hold on a minute jesus cried out and said but he cried out and said to who Right, we started off in verse 36. Jesus has just withdrawn from the crowd. There's nobody around Jesus if we're following the flow of the story. Who is John talking about here? I think, along with most commentators, that we have in verses 44 through 50 a summary of Jesus' two plus years preaching and teaching. And within this short block, we see the most prominent themes in all of his ministry brought back to the surface. This is John saying, in case you missed it, here are the spark notes version of what Jesus taught. Okay, and so we'll summarize it into three things that Jesus taught. The first, that Jesus is on a mission from his heavenly father in verses 44 and 45. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. From chapter 1 onward, Jesus has been claiming that he is not here on his own authority. That he is the eternal son sent by his heavenly father. That he is here doing his father's will. And in fact, he doesn't even say a word unless his father gives it to him to say. Look at verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. In John's gospel, he has gone through pains to show us the working of the eternal Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and their perfect community of heaven spilling out into this world. And Jesus is the missionary that was sent to reveal God and to call people to believe. Second thread, the eternal stakes of Jesus' word, the eternal stakes of Jesus' word. You see that in 47 and 48. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus says his ministry has not come here to condemn the world. But in fact, his word carries the very authority of God himself. And to reject God's words is to prove your guilt now and forever. He looks forward to the last day. He says on the last day, I won't have to do anything. The very words you are rejecting are are the words that will establish that you are guilty for not believing what God has revealed. Each of us will be held accountable for the light that we were given. Each of us will be judged with the measuring stick that God has given us. Now, there's no one that's innocent. God has revealed himself in nature and through the basic uh, conscience of every human. And yet, how much worse is it when we have clear revelation from God, like the very son of God in front of us, and we reject his word, Jesus here warns that is an eternal mistake to make. The third thread is the goal of Jesus's life and ministry. The goal of his life and ministry is for people to believe. And by believing, to find eternal life. In 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Again and again in John's gospel, Jesus has been revealing himself in offering. If you will trust me, if you will believe in me, you will find all of your forever needs cared for. Your sins before God, they will be forever wiped away. Your life will not end. It will start now and go on forever. You'll never be lonely. You'll be in the tightest of all relationships, a relationship between God and his people forever. Jesus has offered this to anyone that would hear his word to turn and believe and find this life. Let's realize that any of us that are Christians, it's because we have heard this invitation from Jesus. And we have believed. It's a miracle that any of us are Christians. It's a miracle that any of us would surrender anything in our lives for God. And yet after the fact, we look back and we see that God has done something within us. A miracle. He's brought us to spiritual life. He's opened our blind spiritual eyes. And we have responded in faith. And we truly do have eternal life if we've believed in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian this morning, remember, it's because you believed in Jesus, not because of anything you did. It's because your heart trusted him. And he came and made a home in your heart. And he'll remain there now and into eternity. John's Gospel ends this section that started all the way back in chapter 1 on a note that he began with. I'm going to end this sermon with the words from chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Jesus is the missionary sent from heaven into this world. We have seen his glory, and God has made us into those that are part of his family as we have believed in. In him, Just let these words wash over you and give thanks to God for what Jesus has done. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, Brothers and sisters, we get to put our faith in this glorious Jesus. Let's pray.